0: In this conversation with award-winning poet Jane Hirsfield, we explore the role of poetry in understanding the human condition and poems as keys to unlock our despair and reconnect us to the vibrant and utterly conscious universe. Roger and I were deeply moved. I think you will be too. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit
1: I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy, author of Integral Recovery, and our guest today is one of the truly one of the great poets of our time, Jane Hirschfield. Jane is the recipient of multiple awards, and just to list three, she is a recipient of the California Book Award. She's a Guggenheim Fellow, a major achievement. And perhaps most dramatically, she was elected in 2019 to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And that is an extremely prestigious appointment. Jane is uh, fascinating and a, and a wonderful guest for our podcast in many ways. First, just the sheer beauty and depth of her poetry, but also because of her spiritual side. Jane has been a long-term Zen practitioner, and I really hope we'll get to explore the ways she explores life through both her poetry and her practice. She's also deeply concerned about the contemporary global issues. So without proselytizing overtly, brings a deep sensitivity to the ecological issues of our time. Her most recent book is a collection called The Asking. New and Selected Poems, and there are a lot of others, uh, The Ledger, and one of my favorites, Women in Praise of the Sacred, 43 Centuries of Spiritual Poetry by Women. So, Jane, there's a lot of places we can go, and I hope we will, but let's start maybe with your most recent collection, The Asking, and could you say a little bit about how you pulled these poems together? What is there a central theme? How which, what spoke to you that evoked that called enough to bring this collection together from your life's work?
2: Well, first, thank you very much for having me join this community's conversation. It's a great honor. So, so how the book came to exist is perhaps a little less grand than you're expecting me to say. I had avoided doing a New and Selected Poems for 15 years. My editors had been asking me to, and I kept saying, oh, no, 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 all the books are in print, it's fine, you know, it feels premature. And then my editor at Knopf said, you know, Jane, you'll be turning 70. Don't you think that would be a good time to bring out a a New and Selected Poems? And I could no longer say it was premature. So I agreed (laughs) to it kind of against my own inclinations But then it did become a very, a much more interesting process that in the end I'm glad I did because, you know, what a book like this means is all the new poems since the last one you wrote, which is of course what any artist is most interested in is the newest work. But then going through the nine previous books of published poetry and gathering together the ones that felt the most useful to others, the most meaningful still to me, the ones that track the story of my evolution as a poet, perhaps, and simply the poems that still feel alive. And, you know, I've already had the experience, as everyone does who does a book like this, of having somebody mention some poem and my thinking, oh, why didn't I put that in the book? It's inevitable. You you can't, you know, this is a large book, but it's still, it's not infinite. But the process of it, you know, one of the things that makes you think about what is the through line of 50 years of poetry is one must put a title on a book like this. And often my books have been quite difficult to title. They've taken a long time. It's been hard. And this one, it suddenly stepped forward very clearly. So it is called The Asking, both because that idea is at the end of one of the newer poems and is quite meaningful, but because I suddenly, or not suddenly at all, recognized that my life has been a life of asking questions much more than of making declarations. You know, I believe that the way we learn is by listening and that most of the central issues of our human lives and certainly our practice lives are not actually answerable. Yet must be asked. So, poems exist as meditation does, as practice does, to respond to the questions that cannot be simply answered or permanently or definitively answered. They must be entered over and over again in a life. And so, you know, that is one of the several through lines in the book and the one that gave it its title, The Asking. You know, other through lines are things like navigating the difficult, saying yes to what we would rather say no to. A human life is a path of continually finding the courage of permeability, of turning towards rather than away from what is painful. And then however many poems are in the book, 350 or so, each one is looking into some very particular dilemma in some very particular way.
1: Yeah, Beautiful. I love the idea of a poem being an exploration of a question which can't be answered. And in a way, you're making me think of the distinction between uh, knowledge questions and wisdom questions. Knowledge questions have a one-time answer. Is it raining outside? Look out the window. End of question. But but wisdom questions are more like cons Every time you ask them, they have the potential for taking you deeper into the question, deeper into yourself, deeper into life. And it, it sounds as though you're saying that's kind of the process or the experience for you of a poem.
2: Yes, of each particular poem and of the arc of this lifetime that I have been so lucky to spend on this earth. You know, with eyes and ears and legs and love's. More and more, it seems to me, that I am flooded with simple gratitude for this brief glimpse of existence that I get to be part of in this particular way for a while. You know, there's nowhere to go. When we die, we're still part of existence. We're just part of it differently. But one of the things of this moment's flavor and taste and experience is just a profound gratitude that I can still be perplexed, that I can feel pain. You know, it's a great signal of being alive if something hurts. You go, oh, yeah, I'm still here. But also, of course, of the abiding radiance that accompanies the abiding griefs and bewilderments of these human lives we find ourselves inside of.
0: Mm. jane i have a question that i want to get in before we move off in another direction and i must confess i heard the answer earlier this morning i've been immersing myself in your conversations and your youtube interviews that are just amazing but somebody asked you and i know this is not original but it's so important and somebody said that repetition is the law of memory so if i hear it enough maybe it'll stick in my head but he asked you what is poetry
2: oh dear yes Well, one of the things about me is I have been lifelong a person of terrible memory. And so I answer a question differently every time because I have absolutely no recollection of what I might have said that you heard this morning and liked so much. So forgive me if it's not as good. (laughs) So what is poetry? Today's answer, this moment's answer is poems are vessels of discovery and records of discovery that are then retrievable again. And of course, each time you perform the experiment with a poem, you will come up with a slightly different answer because we who read it or even we who wrote it are different people. Every time you re-encounter it, you come from a different angle with a different set of experiences. but. Basically, a poem is this vessel of some record of having worked through one of these questions that has no definitive answer, but you arrive at what Robert Frost famously called a momentary stay against confusion. You arrive at something that feels epiphany, understanding, realization— Changed understanding, not the understanding you had before you wrote the poem, but some new one. And then since you talked about, you know, repetition as whatever it was you heard earlier, they do create a certain retrievability because the instructions of think this word, feel that word, enter this image, ask this question, make this Precipitating leap off the 10,000 foot pole or the one inch pole. You know, poems can be small as well as large. You can revisit it and somebody else can also revisit it. So it is a transferable experience. I also sometimes say that, you know, not a definition of poetry, but a definition of art is that it is beauty that transcends the circumstances of its making. So it not only comes from its own moment, but it has some meaning that is beyond its own moment, that can travel beyond the person who first perceived it. I hope that's some kind of answer. To your question,
0: completely different, but equally beautiful, thank you
2: <laughs> i don 't suppose you recall what I said the last time you could say it since i 'm not
0: <laughs> I know it, if it comes to me i 've really been working on that, but I want to stay present with you too and not go off two months but i 'll find it <laughs>
1: Jane you uh, as you describe poetry and and the the call that has leads you to write them i 'm I'm struck you spoke about the unanswered question. I'm, I'm reminded of the idea of that all of us have sacred questions. For example, how how can I love well, or how can I best serve, or how can I learn best? Uh, and that the depth and satisfaction of our lives are a function of how fully we open to and live those questions. And I hear you saying that for poetry, too.
2: Yes, yes. So, you know, when I first arrived at Zen practice in 1974, I think within the first few weeks of my arrival at San Francisco Zen Center, which is the Soto Zen Sangha founded by Suzuki Roshi, famous for the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and also the Sangha which created the first monastery that existed in America for Buddhist practice, which was why I went there in my red Dodge van with tie-dyed curtains. But within those first few weeks, one of the things I heard, now Soto, forgive me, for the rambling answer. Soto, unlike Rinzai, does not have a curriculum of pre-given questions. You know, Rinzai, you are given your koans and you work your way through them. Soto, we hear the koans, we reference the koans, but that's not the practice. That's not the meditation. And so we were each encouraged That it would be good to practice with a question. Because of course, questions wake you up. They keep you alert and curious and looking out into the world in a way which is a little more active than if you're just strolling around without a question. And so for a long time, my question being a perplexed young American woman was the relationship of practice and the emotions because Buddhism has a number of different answers to this, depending on what school and what era and and part of Buddhism you're looking at. And so you're presented as a young practice person, let alone just as a human being, with all these different possibilities of how we should live our life with the emotions. And it took me a long, long time with that question. I finally arrived at something that felt to me a a somewhat more than momentary stay against confusion. And then one needed a new question. So now my question at this later stage of my life, you already named it. Now my question is, how can I serve? That has become what has stepped forward. The earlier question was, you know, it was multiple questions traveling under one carriage roof. It was, you know, how can I love? How can I grieve? What am I supposed to do if I'm angry? What do I do with my confusions? That was many, many questions traveling together. And now it's much more simplified. It's how can I serve?
1: Beautiful. Yeah. And what a beautiful question, but in some way, probably all of us are asking, even if we're not aware we're asking it, and so central to so many traditions' understanding of what a life well-lived is, that it has to include service. And for those of us doing contemplative practice of some kind, service as both a practice and a culmination of practice, both love to hear if you if there's an answer you have an answer today to that question
2: uh, say the question oh. Again, please oh
1: how how can <laughs> oh, i how serve can
2: I? A... <laughs> that question okay that
1: question um, yeah.
2: Yeah. well a sayable answer is is difficult because of course each moment the question asks itself in us newly right now yes. how i'm trying to serve is by having this conversation with you the larger question i think what it Points a person towards if that is your abiding imperative, your, your intentions imperative. I think what it leans towards is the memory, the remembering that we are not solitary in this world. The presumption of service is the remembering that we are all in this together. All beings, All human beings, all creatures, all rocks, all rivers, all planets, all stars. If you have in your heart the feeling of wanting to contribute toward the better rather than the worse, towards the lessening of suffering rather than its increase, inherent in that is the awareness of interconnection and of shared fates. Mm. And of kinship. And I myself do feel that this sense of abiding kinship is one way to describe a path towards compassion, a path towards tenderness, a path towards not putting self before others, And that was, you know, the answer that I came to for that earlier question, which took the shape of what is the emotional life of a Buddha. Now, I was trying to say, if you looked at this from the point of view of awakening, what is our relationship to our emotions? And what I came to being a person of Mahayana training, and I think, you know, Vajrayana would probably say the same, is that... My premise, my hypothesis is that a fully awakened being still feels all of the emotions because the emotions are information. They're absolutely necessary information for us while we are in these human lives. So you feel every emotion that there is, but you feel it not in the service of your small self. You feel it in the service of all beings.
0: Mm, that is a beautiful. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah.
1: yeah, and Jane, maybe this would be a time since you're we're talking about your in in Zen. I think this is called a genji koan, a koan which arises out of life itself, and your your genji koan of. How Can I Serve? I love it if you read the poem uh, Today When I Could Do Nothing, because it speaks Ah. to this so beautifully. I think it's on page 10.
0: The answer already got to me. You don't even have to read it. That was (laughs) (laughs) very good.
2: So so this was a poem written the first hours of the Bay Area, which was the first place in the United States to go into stay-at-home sequestration at the beginning of the pandemic and i had been very busy because my last book came out its pub date was the day that america realized this was serious it was march 10th 2020 was the pub date of the book ledger so i had been reading to a full auditorium in new york city a full auditorium in chicago a much diminished audience in Seattle, which was then the place we knew that COVID had arrived in America. And then I came home and I put myself into quarantine because I knew I'd been exposed to a lot of people. And a few days later, the entire Bay Area went into quarantine and it was very silent there was no traffic on the roads. I don't think you even heard airplanes. Everything was so quiet. There was no construction, nobody's gardening crew. And it was startling. And I suddenly had the chance to stop and feel. And this is a record of what happened. Today, when I could do nothing. Today. When I could do nothing, I saved an ant. It must have come in with the morning paper, still being delivered to those who shelter in place. A morning paper is still an essential service. I am not an essential service. I have coffee and books, time, a garden, silence enough to fill cisterns. It must have first walked the morning paper, as if loosened ink taking the shape of an ant, then across the laptop computer, warm, then onto the back of a cushion. Small black ant, alone, crossing a navy cushion, moving steadily because that is what it could do. Set outside in the sun, it could not have found again its nest. What then did I save? It did not look as if it was frightened, even while walking my hand, which moved it through swiftness and air. aunt, alone, without companions, whose ant heart I could not fathom. How is your life? I wanted to ask. I lifted it, took it outside. This first day... When I could do nothing, contribute nothing beyond staying distant from my own kind, I did this. Mm. Wow. (laughs) That poem, oddly enough, a few hours after I wrote it, I got an email from the culture page editor of the San Francisco Chronicle saying, you know, Jane, our readers, they they take so much, you know, uh, they value what you have to offer so much. Is there any chance you have something to say into this new situation? And if I hadn't already written the poem, I certainly could not have done it to order. But because I'd already written the poem, I emailed back and said, Can I have 24 hours to like look at this and make sure it's finished? And then I think I do have something for you. And so it went out a few days later in the newspaper. It was probably, you know, certainly in the US, it was the first poem to speak into this and went, you know, pretty viral at the time, got passed around a lot. And I love that one of the people who read it somehow got to my email and got back to me and said, you know, I'm an entomologist. Ants have marvelous pheromonic capacities. If it was anywhere near its nest, it did get back to it. And I was so happy to think, oh, maybe it did. You know, better for the poem that I thought, you know, what use is this? Have I actually done any good? A question is better than, you know, one wouldn't want to present oneself as the heroic savior. That's not very good poetry. But I was relieved to know maybe it actually helped. And of course, that last line, you know, on this day when I could do nothing, I did this when I wrote it, I meant, you know, I put an ant outside. I saw somebody lonely, confused, away from their kind, and I was able to return them to their community. But, of course, in the end, it also means I wrote the poem. Yes. no, yeah. no.
0: Yeah. Jane, getting back to the, the mystery of poetry itself, this is something you've been recognized for and had done for decades now. Is that a unique experience or do you find that when you get into poetry vein when you touch that level of consciousness that makes poetry a given or a possibility do you find synchronicities kind of start piling up on the outside of your life do things people start showing up or things or events or books fly off the shelf or whatever
2: well, no, no poltergeists, no, no flying books as yet. That was a But yes, of course, of course. You know, I think when we to write a poem, you enter not only a deepened state of concentration, but a deepened state of openness. And I think when we are open, we begin to see the interconnections that are all around us and the world begins to speak in a broader chorus. It's like, it's just, it's rather the same thing as why one might want to practice with a question. When you have a question, you start hearing answers to it everywhere. This happens to me every time I write one of my essays. I I hesitate to bring this up because I'm so early in the process, I have no idea what will come. But my, my next essay investigation is going to be something about how to make, how does the invisible become visible? And I think poems do that. They take things which are already present to be seen but haven't been seen and they find a way to make it visible. But this is also in all other fields, you know, what is science except the making visible of things that already exist by finding either a new technology of observation, you know, a microscope that suddenly lets you see how much life is in any drop of water, a telescope that allows you to see further and further out into this immense universe of existence we are part of, you know, all knowledge Is something that was once invisible to us becomes visible, sometimes is proven wrong or needs some correction, the way the Hubble telescope needed an adjustment of of correction to see more clearly. But anyhow, having this question in my mind now, as I think what will go into this essay, I keep finding examples of it everywhere. So, you know, suddenly I will hear Carlo Rovelli, the physicist, talking about how nothing is an object, everything is an event. And this is not new to me, and yet somehow hearing it this time, I began to feel more powerfully the extraordinary change of relationship to ourselves and the world if we could actually understand existence as verbs and not nouns. Everything is altered, and so a way of feeling my own life's relationship to everything that I move through and encounter and think about is suddenly transformed into this sense of, you know, if it's all verbs, there is no separation. There is n- non-duality is inherent in an existence experienced as a verb and not as a noun. And so because I have this particular path of permeability and openness in asking questions through poems, through essays, through conversations like this, the world starts answering your questions. So again, a rambling answer to your question, but I hope it makes sense to you that, you know, yes, yes, of course, synchronicity is everywhere. I'm trying to think about something, and suddenly I keep hearing the piano playing answers to whatever it is the question is. Just as when you write any poem, things leap into the poem that you had no idea were going to because they help. And I, the woman who, you know, lifelong no memory, things I didn't know I remembered will come and help me. The way in the myth of psyche, the ants come and help sort the grains. She couldn't do it by herself. She needs the ants. None of us can be a human being or think or feel our way about anything without everything coming in to assist.
1: Uh-oh. And you just gave me a, in the first part of your response, you gave me a new understanding of what poetry does and, because you spoke of it as it gives, it brings into awareness that which was there but not maybe recognized. And I'm thinking in philosophical terms, there's the idea of, that so much, In our lives so much information subsists, that is it's below awareness, but if we look in the right way then we bring it into existence. It stands out rather than being lost under the underneath our awareness or because we didn't have a microscope or a telescope, as you said. And I it never occurred to me if poetry is doing that but of course it does, yeah.
2: That is one of the main things, one of the main things it's doing. So if I might just leap forward and free associate about please, something. you know, one example of this process of things arising from the inside, things arising from the outside, and it all coming together in a poem is, you know, so I, I am not a scientist, but I follow science. I'm curious, I read it. And you might remember years and years ago people began to be aware of the microbiome they'd never thought about the microbiome before you know which is basically our name for the fact that of our human bodies a rather large part of us isn't human it's it's little microbes living in us and and helping doing the work of digestion and doing the work of of, you know, transport. And so that was in my mind. And then there was an article in the Science Times, this is 2013, so, you know, about 10 years ago, that scientists had figured out how itch works, and that there was a particular protein that carries itch. And when I read that article, I felt I was just excited by it. I I liked the, I liked the words of it. I liked the thought that, you know, because I'd never really thought about itch and that somebody was studying how it worked. And this all came together into a poem, which I'd like to read you if I might, which is part of a series of poems, all of which in some way or other are also investigating what is a self. You know, so that question, what is a self? Where does, you know, in a world of interconnection, what does it mean to think of one? Because of course, we also do have selves. You know, it's, it's, it's not that they don't exist. We have lives and we need to inhabit them and take care of them and tend them with tenderness and love and concern and practice and exercise and all of those things. So anyhow, this is, this is the poem precipitated by outside knowledge, but inhabited by interior question, my proteins. They have discovered, they say, the protein of itch, natureotic polypeptide B, and that it travels its own distinct pathway inside my spine, as do pain, pleasure, and heat. A body, it seems, is a highway, a cloverleaf crossing, well-built, well-traversed, some of me going north, some going south. Ninety percent of my cells, they have discovered, are not my own person. They are other beings inside me, as ninety-six percent of my life is not my life. Yet I, they say, am they my bacteria and yeasts, my father and mother, grandparents, lovers, my drivers talking on cell phones, my subways and bridges, my thieves, my police, who chase myself night and day. My proteins, apparently also me, fold the shirts. I find in this crowded metropolis a quiet corner where I build of not-me Lego blocks, a bench, pigeons, a sandwich of rye bread, mustard, and cheese. It is me, and is not, the hunger that makes the sandwich good. It is not me, then is, the sandwich, a mystery neither of us can fold, unfold, or consume. Now, I've had the question behind that poem since I was, you know, six years old and would lie in my bed wondering, when does the peanut butter and jelly sandwich stop being peanut butter and jelly and start being Jane? You know, it was a great mystery to me, and it is still a great mystery to me. And so this is one of those questions that can never be answered because we have. You know, evolution made us creatures who think we are separate selves. You know, it's very useful if you're not going to be eaten to be afraid of the lion and run away. And yet it is also very useful to our hearts and our ability to live with one another and all beings on this earth to know that we are also a community who cannot exist without all the rest also existing. And so all of that, you know, somehow comes together and turns into a poem that for a moment discovers a new way of answering this abiding question. Who are we? What are we? What is our relationship to each other? What must we be grateful toward?
1: And I'm struck by the way that you've been open to new information. These questions you've been holding for a lifetime become enriched but still remain questions in a beautiful way. And one of the things that's um, particularly striking about your work and perhaps one of the reasons, one of many reasons why it touches so many people is that you have, you have remained open to new information about the world and the troubles we're going through. And you've, you've spoken to, for example, the ecological impact and disruption that we're going through, the changes in climate and so forth, and you've somehow woven that into your poetry not like a sermon but in a in a way that I, get, as you said before, brings out something that we may be sort of aware of, but you've given it voice. I'd love to have you speak to that,
2: yeah, so it begins with my own perplexity and grief. You know, I was a young person when the first Earth Day happened in 1970. And we all saw for the first time a photograph taken from outer space showing the whole Earth. And we understood, because it's been known for a long time, that this crisis we find ourselves in now, it was all visible then. It was knowable Then Rachel Carson wrote about the melting Arctic ice, I think, in 1949, the early 50s. This is not new news. And the crises were all visible. And with the optimism of the young, I thought we were going to attend to what needed attending to then. Similarly, of course, you know, the Vietnam War was going on then. And so these crises and civil rights awareness was going on then. And so the crises of climate and equity and violence and justice, every one of them, was in my awareness from when I was a teenager, if not before. And here we are, 50 years later, still trying desperately now to catch up to what we knew needed to be done. And somehow, as a global community, our species did not take this up, did not do it earlier, still are not positively... Doing enough now. And this became a knife in my heart. So I wrote back in 2004, which is late to the party, it is not early. You know, I wrote a little poem with the title, as it was then called, Global Warming, you know, not climate crisis as we now call it, but global warming, which back then was trying to look at the question of. Why is anybody denying this if they have grandchildren they care about? And then, you know, after that, 10 years later, 2014, I wrote a poem that I think I'd like to read you, if I may, called Let Them Not Say which was written with the crisis of the biosphere completely in mind, but ended up being published as a poem about the political not seeing. Since this new book came out, when I've been giving it at reading, somebody came up to me And said she thought it was about, you know, another crisis yet. And so I've begun to feel, oh, I suppose this is an all-purpose crisis poem. You know, whatever (laughs) catastrophe you have in mind. It's a poem that looks from the point of view of the future, looking back on us and weighing what we did or did not do. It is a poem that desperately hopes that in 150 years, there will be somebody who might stumble into it and say, oh, why was she so worried? That poem, you know, why was she so worried? The poem was written in the effort for that to happen. It wants to erase itself from meaningfulness. Let them not say. Let them not say we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say we did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say they did not taste it. We ate. We trembled. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke. We witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say, as they must say, something. A kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. So, a poem of enormous grief That I then had to live up to. Having written that poem, It became part of my task as a poet To have it not be so that they would say we did not enough. And so I began writing after that. A foreground subject for me became the crises of biosphere and also of justice and violence. These subjects had always been in my work, but they were in my work much more after 2014 because I realized that I had to live up to my own recognition
0: I have a question for you Jane maybe you could say I'm still getting back to the mystery of poetry because it, it keeps emerging you're you're a poet and it's what you do what is the relationship between the reader and the writer and I know I've, I, I've been pretty open about this in our conversations on deep transformation that I've struggled with depression a lot in my life and One of the things that I can't get when I'm in that cutoff state of depression, I can't read poetry and get it just like I can't look outside and see the bird and see the flower and get it somehow there's something in between there. So I know from the conversations I've been listening to you in preparation for this conversation that you've read a lot of poetry yourself and What can you say about the state of consciousness that one has to enter in both to write a poem and both to read a poem and to receive it in a way that really there's that transmission that happens. There's that thousands of years and we're still writing poems, right, because of the magic of, of of the transmitted word.
2: Yeah. I'm going to answer a little more specifically than you wanted me to with this question, which is I'd like to speak about poems and deep depression, because I once was in an absolutely profound clinical depression. It was early in my life. I didn't even know that was the name of what was wrong with me. I was simply under that iron belt that cut me off from everything, including myself, for a very long time. And only in retrospect did the name depression even occur to me. I was so far down in it. I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. And one of the signs, I suppose, of emerging from it, and I couldn't read poetry either, or write poetry. It was it was unavailable to me. Everything was unavailable to me. And one morning, you know, four AM, I woke up and a poem simply said itself from inside of me. And that was probably one of the first intimations that I was going to emerge from this condition. And it was just a tiny crack in it, but having written the poem, I was changed. And even though the crack closed again, something was different. And that actually became, you know, the earliest of my poems, which is still Meaningful to me and which I still give it readings and which, which has stayed important to me because of what it says. What it says was in itself a re-entrance into the possibility of wholeness. I'll just say the title. I won't, you know, I don't want to take up too much of our time in this conversation. I'll say the poem if you want me to, but the title... I would
0: love you. I would love actually to hear the poem. You would love me
2: to read it? Okay. Yes, please. Well, I will. Let me me find it. So this poem was written in 1982. Um, And here it is. For what binds us? I think I, I will say, so what had thrown me into, into that condition was the abrupt ending of my first long-term love. So it was a situational depression. And for many years, I, I read the poem by saying, I don't know if, you know, this is a poem about the end of love or about love. And I went back and forth when I wrote it the last three words, the order of them. And when I first published it, I had them one way. And even though this poem had been written out of a broken heart, six months after it came out in a magazine, somebody came up to me and said, I had your poem read at my wedding. And I was so shocked. And then I published it in the order it's in now. And now the book is out. And the next printing, I'm reversing it back to the other ones because I have begun reading it as a poem now having to do with peace between nations. So, anyhow, again, long preface, which don't, won't make any sense till you hear the poem. But For What Binds Us. There are names for what binds us strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them the skin that forms in a half-empty cup, nails rusting into the places they join, joints dovetailed on their own weight, the way things stay so solidly wherever they've been set down, and gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence, more strong than the simple, untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised. Proud flesh, as all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, See how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can mend or tear. Now, that's a complicated poem to come out of profound depression and just say itself so that I was transcribing it but it did. Mm. And having been a poet as much as I had, even, you know, until 40 years ago, I was very young. Poetry came and saved me. Poetry came and made me this promise of that the flesh does grow back across a wound and that the scar that is left is a strength and not... Not a weakness. And that last image, you know, how the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can bend or tear, that nothing can tear or mend. You see, there's a different quality to which word comes last. And now I know how the story ended. You know, that first love and I, we stayed close the rest of our lives. I was there when he was dying. And in the end, nothing did tear that connection. It just continued on in a different form. It's a more optimistic close to the poem that nothing can tear or mend leaves you with the brokenness, that nothing can mend or tear leaves you with the wholeness, with the connection. And so here I am. You know, 40 plus years after I've written it, still thinking, what is it? Do I want to say? Almost no other words were changed in that poem from the way it first spoke itself through me. And those words at the end, I've gone back and forth on back and forth on because it remains a living question. And now I feel, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take the optimistic stance that nothing mm. Can mend or tear. It cannot be torn. Other times, when I feel that I cannot read poetry, and that will still happen, there will be times in my life when it is unavailable to me. It is such a saving moment when the possibility comes back. And then, whatever it is I turn to, it helps me keep going. I've had year-long silences in my life as a poet, because poetry was unavailable to me, and I had to look elsewhere for some connection to the life under the surface. I One time that this happened, you know, the time that it was a year from one poem to the next, I ended up keeping a dream journal because I felt like I needed some connection to my unconscious and poetry wasn't giving it to me but we all dream whether we remember it or not and so i kept a dream journal to keep that connection to the unconscious wisdom and the unconscious working out alive in my life so i i i am completely in your company john yeah. with that sense of it I will also recommend the poet Tomas Tranströmer, the Swedish poet who who did win the Nobel Prize. He was depressed all his life, and he has many poems about the process of wrestling with this. And if I had a memory, I would recite one by heart, but I don't. I can only send send it to you later if you like. I would love that. I believe the title of the one I'm thinking of is Face to Face. If people want to look it up online, I know it's available. And it is about this emerging from the feeling of being smothered under the surface of something that won't let you feel and then suddenly leaping out and being restored.
0: You know, I I would say, too, that I'm, I'm a songwriter and that writing songs about the pain saved my life. Yes. Literally. My brother committed suicide. He didn't get there, you know. But it, it has saved me. And by the way, I just wanted to put in you don't ramble, you flow. So don't worry about it. Thank you. And as a reader, being exposed to your words and your poems over the last, you know, week and a half or however long I've been starting to focus on it, it has, I've been moving into a phase of writing songs again. I, I feel a new things coming on and your, poems have sparked these mini revelations if you will i mean i'll see something and oh you know and i record it into my phone or i write it down or i have a vision or it's little things that seem to be opening up in the direction and someone else's depth and creativity touches oneself and helps one to discover or rediscover or get that moving again in their own life. So it's been, uh, anyway, it's been a gift. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you. And of course, many, many other poets and songwriters and painters and playwrights have done that work for me. This is why we live embedded in a world where art exists. You know, art saves us all at some point. And, you know, we might think some are frivolous or amusing or entertaining, and it is, but it also carries the deep currents of wisdom or of trickster or of the simple possibility that something can be seen differently, and that becomes contagious, and it helps us You know, the Turkish poet Hikmet was in prison for, I don't know, a decade. And yet, from even inside the barrenness of his prison cell, he could look out, see one tree in the distance, write a poem, be saved by it, and his poem could then go on to save others in equally impossible circumstances. There's also that sense of, Something that I feel is curative both for depression and also for a kind of related experience, which I think many of us are grappling with now, which is despair. I think a lot of us are navigating, you know, a tightrope between hope and despair as we look at the current state of things around us. As we open any day's newspaper or hear the radio or Look at what emerges online. Hope, despair, hope, despair. And for me, the curative for despair is any sense of agency. And putting two new words next to each other in a way that strikes the tiniest spark of light is agency. Agency first for myself. I remember that if I can change nothing, I can do that. There's another small poem somewhere in this big book called Changing Everything, and it is about such a moment of feeling, you know, I was walking around going, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do. And I was walking on a trail in the woods and I picked up a stick and I moved it to the other side of the path. And that's all the poem holds is doing that. I had changed something. And in the back of my mind was what was then the new idea of the butterfly effect. That you, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Africa and there's a typhoon in Asia months later because of that slight change in the air current. We have no idea the effects of what we do. We have no idea if meeting someone's eyes as we walk down a crowded street changes their day. And so to do anything is a great saving grace, I think. And to make a new song or a new poem or a new line on a piece of paper with charcoal that is alive in our hands We have no idea what the effects of that will be in our own lives and perhaps in the life of somebody else who meets it later.
1: Well, two associations come to mind, Jane. One is, I remember a very poignant story of one of the hundreds of people who suicided from the Golden Gate Bridge, left a note saying, I'm going to walk to the bridge and if anyone smiles at me, I won't won't throw myself off. So, wow! And the other side, other thing is the miracle of creativity—that out of this major depression you're going through, somehow, by some miracle, this exquisite poem just emerged in the middle of the night. And I'd love to hear you speak about how you coax the muses, I can't think of the right word, (laughs) you know, all of us who who are creative in any way, and all of us are, we know that there's something transpersonal about it. It's more than this little ego, and yet we can do our part, and I'd love to hear what that process is for you.
0: Stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Jane Hirschfield, in which the Dialogos continues to flow with great power thank you very much for being a part of this conversation we hope that you were moved as we are moved being part of it ourselves we'd also like to say that this is being funded by Roger and myself it comes out of our pockets so if you would like to help us to mainly to get this podcast out to more people because the bigger audience have which is steadily growing but the more people we can reach and the more marketing we can do the more positive effect we can have on the world so we've done a couple of ways but we'd like you to buy us a cup of coffee very simple and I do that with podcasts that I support and I find it very satisfying. So thank you for your help. Thank you for your presence and thank you for all you are and all you do. We love you.